0: Again, a very pleasant good morning to each of you and how delightful and how thankful we each can be for the opportunity that's been given to us to assemble and to gather on this occasion and for this purpose. We are able to appreciate the marvelous commandment, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching, the direct command of Hebrews 10 Verse 25. This group of precious souls have assembled this morning, and for that we're certainly appreciative and thankful. Our regular membership at Pippin, and yet, as usually the case, and a host of visitors that have also today come our way. We hope that each of us can find the service to be an uplifting exercise, drawing us closer to what God would have us to do and to be. I perhaps might take just a moment of uh, personal matter on behalf of my family and myself to express appreciation to this congregation for all the encouragement to Brooklyn and to the ball her playing in the ball team yesterday and the success they enjoyed. Certainly we appreciate all the papers and all the kind words that you've expressed toward her and toward us, and we're certainly happy for her uh, she is not able to be here today. Denise is a pretty sick lady this morning and uh, Br- thought it best for Brooklyn to stay there and try to make sure that she had uh, the things that she needed. Hopefully, hopefully she'll be feeling better by the time I get back home uh, shortly after services. At this point, as you come to this part in the lesson today, a mouth full of gravel. You probably noted in the lesson text this morning that phrase is found in Proverbs 20, verse 17, and we will devote much of our attention today to a consideration of that interesting usage of words by the ancient writer, a mouth full of gravel. Some introductory remarks, however, that might direct us toward that appreciation might well be these. You probably noted that the context touched the subject of deceit, D-E-C-E-I-T, And really today, most of our time together, at least for the lesson, we will remind ourselves of some of the biblical teachings concerning deceit, the way in which it relates to a mouthful of gravel, and of course the great lessons that you and I can extract from that and use them hopefully to walk more pleasingly and acceptably before God. Deceit has been a part of the human family since virtually the very beginning. In fact, wasn't it the inspired writer Paul who in 1 Timothy 2.14 exactly said that Mother Eve, in fact, was guilty of deceit? She fell victim to the deceit of the devil. She fell victim to that marvelous matter that had brought such evil and such difficulty to the human family. The nature of that deceit perhaps reminds us that today we are by no means immune from deceit. We see it, it seems, often in the sports world. We seemingly encounter it often in government, and far too often we encounter it among those that you and I know on a daily basis, perhaps co-workers, those whom we thought we knew well, and yet it turns out that ultimately they are found to be guilty of deceit. That kind of consideration prompts those questions at the bottom of that slide. What does the Word of God say about deceit? In what way might you and I plant that in our heart and use it to live more nobly, more acceptably, and more pleasingly before God day by day? Some of the things about deceit are already rather obvious, I'm sure, but I believe it would do us well to be reminded not only of what the Bible says about it, but some of those often ways that we have even encountered it. I would suspect that it would be wise to begin with a definition, to in attempt to clarify what it is that we mean by this topic of deceit. That definition, as you can see at the top of that particular slide, any device, any approach, any particular matter, the design of which is to deceive or to state that differently, to cause others to accept as either valid or true what is neither valid nor true. Deceit. The commonness, the occurrence with which it seems to happen, at times can almost be shocking. There are many reasons it seems. Those in the regions of sociology, those who in fact give their attention to matters touching, circumstances of psychiatry, may tell us that many things may ultimately have a prompting role in deceit. For some, it's pride. They don't want to be thought of as not good enough or not knowing and hence they deceive. For others, it's perhaps jealousy. For others, it's the fear of failure. Maybe for someone else, it is the pressure of peers about them coupled with the reality of personal weakness. Be that as it may, it doesn't change the fact that deceit is deceit. With regard to those issues of deceit, we might at least for just a moment look at two quick examples in the Word of God and then we will move our lesson in a direction of making the applications. The first one at the bottom of that slide takes us back to the days of the Old Testament. Naaman is a gentleman, the thought of which so easily rests upon our mind. We recall this Syrian nobleman in the sense he was a military man, and yet he was a leper. In 2 Kings 5, upon learning of the existence of a prophet in Israel who in fact could do something about that leprosy, he provided himself an entourage and moved in that direction. He was hopeful of finding some relief. When he got there, Elisha didn't do anything close to what he expected. Elisha simply told him by way of order to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and he would be cleansed. That was not the news he wished to hear. In fact, he himself admitted by way of those other servants about him, he wished for something far greater to attract the attention and to make a public spectacle out of it. Finally, however, upon the insistence of his friends, his associates, he did go. But the deceit in all of that comes when we give thought to what happened after that. After all of that, you see, this gentleman, Naaman, after being cleansed, he offered a number of gifts to Elisha. Naaman was so thankful. He was so happy to be relieved from leprosy. However, Elisha refused the gifts. He didn't accept a single one of them. At that point, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, observed all these gifts and he observed Elisha's refusal to accept them. And so after Naaman and his entourage left, Gehazi had the idea. He'd like to have some of those things. And so he chased after Naaman and caught up with him and then he told this story. He said, two servants are coming "'to my master, and my master has thus insisted "'that you give some of those gifts to them.'" Naaman was ready and happy to do so. He was still overjoyed and thankful, and so he gave this silver, and he gave these changes of raiments. All the while Gehazi, however, wanted them for himself. They weren't for any servants. He lied. And after he brought those things back, and he hid them, and he came before Elisha, and Elisha already knew where he had been. Elisha said, Gehazi, whither hast thou been? And Gehazi answered, Thy servant hath been no whither. He lied again, you see. I haven't been anywhere, Elisha. Elisha then in a very somber way said, Did not my soul go with thee when thou wentest to the man? At that point we notice the punishment laid fully upon Gehazi. The leprosy that had been with Naaman shall cleave unto thee and to thy seed forever. Gehazi, you see, was guilty of deceit. He lied not only to Elisha but also to Naaman and ultimately we see God's displeasure with that matter and deceit. Here was a gentleman punished nobly by the nature of leprosy. But that Old Testament example just whets our appetite because, of course, I suspect that the most noteworthy New Testament example is the very one mentioned in Acts the 5th chapter. There we recall two individuals, a husband and wife they were, Ananias and Sapphira. They were blessed by God with possessions, with land if you please. And as they sold that, their idea was to give a part of it unto the apostles for the work of the kingdom. When all the while, however, the impression that they gave was that they gave all of it. In so doing, they lied to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5 verse 4. In so doing, not only did he die, but three hours later his wife did. One more time, we see that deceit did not go well with them. It in fact cost them their life. God's displeasure was evident. It burned hot like a raging fire. And isn't it so that deceit is still not looked upon favorably, despite the fact of some of these examples? I chose a few stories off the news at least in recent months, sometimes even recent years. And I'm sure that you could add many more to it, but the lesson need not be about listing the evils of humanity. Our interest is the teaching of the Word of God. But just look at a few of these. It wasn't long ago before one of the referees working for the National Basketball Association not only was found guilty of working games on which he had betted. But again, his attempt at deceit was noteworthy and it brought a great scandal on the National Basketball Association. One could turn to baseball and note yet one more time that player after player, often making millions and millions of dollars and garnering the attention of young and old alike, have been found guilty of using performance-enhancing drugs. Sometimes those records that have entered into the record books have to have an asterisk beside them because the gentleman who supposedly broke the record didn't do it honestly. What a tragedy. What an absolute shame. Cycling, maybe most notably, at least in recent months, has taken center stage on this deceit business, hasn't it? Probably the most famous cyclist in the world, Lance Armstrong. Seven Tour de France titles in a row. The man was untouchable for years in cycling. Now it was known that he used performance enhancing drugs all the while. And even all the while, the times he was accused, he denied it. He claimed he had never been guilty of these things, and now he's admitted that he did. Guilty of deceit? Absolutely. Stripped of all the titles? Without a doubt. Even the gold medals and the various other things, sometimes in track and field, have met the same fate. Marian Jones won a number of medals in the 2000 Olympics. They were all stripped from her because she was found guilty of deceit. Deceit. As you think about all these issues concerning deceit, you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, and without belaboring it, politicians have also had their part to play in this. Sometimes congressmen, sometimes presidents. Sometimes other judicial officials have been guilty of deceit. It's a scandal. It looks bad upon them, their families, and upon, yea, others whom they may know. For all that reason, I produce this slide that I hope emphasized some of the things I think we would all readily admit. Deceit, for the time being, may have looked good to them. They may have thought that I'm going to get away with this. They may have thought that all will work well in the end. But in the final analysis, isn't this fair to say? All the times that deceit happened, they lied. They misled those about them, sometimes maybe even themselves. And in addition to all of that, think about the hardship it brought on their families, the disgrace, the shame of it all, the nature of their association, and never again will they be looked upon in the same way that they were. At this point, who could ever say that some of those great athletes can be looked upon as purely, as honestly, as worthily as they once were, and that's a tragedy. I would suffice it to say that they're at the bottom of that slide in many ways, at least I'm sure your feelings are much like mine. They disgrace their sport, they disgrace themselves, and they disgrace their family. Deceit, you see, is not to be taken lightly and yet it's something that the devil wishes all of us to fall prey to. For that reason, let us devote the rest of our time to thinking more carefully about the biblical proclamations against deceit. We will use some passages both in the Old and the New Testament, and time and again we will find that just as it was with Gehazi and with Ananias and Sapphira, the Word of God is exceedingly plain and exceedingly severe as it relates to deceit. As you can see upon this slide, there are times that we as parents, friends, and others even today try to instill within our youth the importance of cheating in terms of avoiding it. Sometimes we say it in light of this, that cheaters never win and winners never cheat. But obviously, there are many others who have looked upon deceit differently than that. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, let's begin in the Old Testament. There are many ways in which deceit can happen, not just in sports and not just in some of these other activities like we've mentioned so far today. But isn't it true that it's entirely possible for deceit to occur in business dealings? After all, an individual makes a claim concerning some product, sells it, and all the while his claims were false and the product was junk. Maybe we've all been prey of that as well in one way or another. Or yea, we can appreciate that a person operating a business does not make an honest and fair transaction. One gets less than what he paid for. I think we each appreciate that that kind of thing has often been a temptation for those greedy of money and greedy of other things. And so God addressed it in Leviticus 19 verse 35. In the heart here of these matters given to the children of Israel in the ancient day, to those that would be involved in business, God very clearly said, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment, in meat yard, in weight, or in measure. They were to do no unrighteousness. When you and I think about the terms that the God of heaven has utilized, first of all, in judgment, We remember on many occasions they were never to take bribes. They were always to judge fairly in terms of the evidence presented and they were not to let a person's money or lack thereof in any way prejudice their judgment. For after all, that would be unfair and it would be deceitful. In this instance, what about the last two terms used in that list? Weight and measure. In that ancient era... Business dealings, which you and I think about employing money, it was done by way of weight. As you come to buy something, you would make an exchange for the thing that you were purchasing for some weight of metal. Perhaps it was a weight of silver, perhaps it was a weight of lead, or at least some other precious thing that could be exchanged. It would have been very tempting for the person operating the balance to misoperate it in his favor so that He gave you less than what you paid for. God said, you shall not do that. That's deceitful. Things are to be honest and fair. And deceit is not to be that which is descriptive of a person interested in pleasing God. That kind of deceit there is mentioned in Deuteronomy 25 verse 13 even more strongly. There the God of heaven said, ye shall have a fair balance... And fair weights. You can imagine how easy it would be. And later Old Testament prophets had to address this very carefully and very sternly. Even in the children of Israel. They were tempted, you see, to be unfair and deceitful in their business dealings. Today, as we appreciate, that still can be a very strong temptation for some. For those interested in money or in other things like fame and prestige and notoriety, they like to take advantage often of other people. But as Christians, you and I, that's not our business. Our business and our interest is their soul, our soul, and hopeful that each one can stand justified, pure, and right before God. And deceit is the devil's game, not God's. That issue and deceit, of course, takes us to the very text that was read earlier in our hearing this morning. Please look at Proverbs chapter 20 yet again with me. After we have discussed and made note of these references in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we notice in verse number 10 of Deuteron- or rather of Proverbs 20, "...divers' weights and divers' measures, both of them alike, are abomination to the Lord." That word abomination indicates that which God loathes, that which He absolutely despises, In divers' weights, divers' measures. That is to say, you have one particular standard you pull out and use for the rich man to make sure you give him right, but you take advantage of those that are poor and not, not able to fight you, and so you use an improper one. You give him only 12 ounces worth instead of 16. God said that's an abomination. As you read further, you'll notice in verse number 14, "...it is not, it is not, saith the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasteth." Picture it with me. Here's a person interested in buying something, and you claim, oh, that's not worth what you're asking. That's improperly made. It's not fashioned rightly. There are flaws in it that I observe." And so all the while you're there in front of the person selling, it's not, it's not, it's not worth it. But then as soon as you go your way, oh, that's a great deal. In fact, it's worth more than he's asking. You've been deceitful. You have told to him a different story than what you honestly believe. And in that deceit, you'll notice in verse number 14, that's not something that God approves. Verse 17 says, bread of deceit is sweet to a man. But afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Deceit, how sweet it may seem at the time, how interesting it may seem. It may seem as if, and all those examples we've mentioned earlier, be it in politics, be it in government, be it in sports or otherwise, at the time it may have seemed so engaging, it may have seemed so worthwhile in terms of one's personal reputation. But isn't it amazing that that bread of of deceit, though sweet it may seem then, the God of heaven has nonetheless said afterwards. You see, there's always a time that comes after the deceit. There's always a time that comes after the attempted deception. The deception in the moment thereof is not the end, is it? How strongly did Moses, for God, speak to Israel in Numbers 32, 23 and say, Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. And ought not you and I keep that thought thoroughly in mind even today? The moment of deceit. It may seem as though we've won, we have come out ahead, we've accomplished that which the deceit intended to bring about. But what about 24 hours later? A week later, a month later, when word leaks out, when it's found out what happened. We remember a moment ago in cycling that, of course, the last of his Tour de France's was won. Now, what, about eight years ago, I guess it was. So it has taken that long before the accusations bubbled forth to a point he could no longer defend them. Now, look at the scars on his reputation. The companies and the businesses that he had established and all the funding that went with them, they have dropped completely out of his foray. Tragic beyond description. Might we say, though, that the Word of God teaches you and me as it often does about the seriousness time and again of this issue of deceit. As you'll notice on this next slide, some of the ways that deceit seems to come before us today are housed in the reality not only of lying, but in the very issue of simple, basic deception. Behaving in such a way to where we impress upon someone else to think differently about us or about something than what really is the case. We try to deceive them. Our world is very good at that, isn't it? And make no doubt about it, Satan encourages it. Because if deception becomes the order of the day, that means mistrust is high on the list. You can't trust anybody else because you've learned you've been stabbed in the back by them. What they said before did not turn out to be right. Or at least it turned out to be sufficiently different that you now have to doubt what they say. Mistrust is a strong element that leads to a crushing lack of faithfulness among any community. Maybe our country is suffering greatly beneath the burden of deceit today. We watch the TV, and I'm sure all of you are about as cynical as I am. It's hard to believe any commercial. It sounds too good to be true. Advertisements on the Internet, the radio, it sounds too good to be true. And more often than not, isn't it? Companies ought to say what they mean and mean what they say. People like you and me need to mean what we say and say what we mean. Deception. Deceit, as it appears, perhaps leads us to some of these verses. The Word of God is so strong in its condemnation of lying, telling someone a falsehood, stating to them what is not the case. Didn't God say in Exodus 20, verse 16, among the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not bear false witness? It was not that it was not to be done most of the time, that it was not to be done but all oh, once every now and then and only then in needs of personal catastrophe. He said, Thou shalt not. And that was just the same language that began the verses previous, wasn't it? Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt commit no adultery, thou shalt not covet. In the same way, thou shalt not bear false witness. Later on in Zechariah chapter 8, that notable prophet that's near the end of the Old Testament, he said, Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor. When well, we remember that God through Zechariah said those words to ancient Israel, the people that you might have thought would be upstanding and always given to the truth. But it still is true, the devil worked his way among that people just as surely as he can among us today. We need to realize that when Paul quoted that Zechariah passage in Ephesians 4.25, he told you and me the same thing. Speak ye every man the truth with his neighbor. Put away lying from you. That's what leads to a strong element of trust among a group of people. When a group of people are found time and time again, what He said is the way it is. What she affirmed really did happen. She didn't try to cover it, didn't deceive me at all. That's what leads to a great element of appreciation, of trust one amongst another, and it of course also leads to a bedrock reality in the truth that God has set forth. Our God is a God of truth, Deuteronomy 32.4. Our God is a God who in fact appreciates and who himself encourages truth in those that would be pleasing to him. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? John 14, 6. With that appreciation of truth, notice some of these verses. We've highlighted the Zechariah passage, that issue in deceit as it emanates into the reality of lying perhaps it's time to ask, what does the Bible say more directly about deceit per se? I might begin this particular section, which is the very last part in the lesson this morning, by at least asking us to reflect on that example of Jesus. We are told, and I think it was mentioned earlier today in the Bible class, that we are to have the mind of Christ in us, Philippians 2.5. But think about what is said about the Lord in 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Of Jesus it is there said, there was no guile found in His mouth. No guile. That word guile relates to deceit. It relates to what's improper, impure, and contaminated. There was none of it in the mouth of the Master. And if you and I are to have the mind of Christ, then should not that be descriptive of us as well? No guile in your mouth or mine. Maybe in light of that, it challenges us to think about the purity then that should characterize our minds so that there shall be no deception appearing in us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, to quote Matthew 5 verse 8. And wasn't it said also in First Timothy 4 verse 12 that Paul speaking to Timothy in that day, and of course by inspiration to you and me as well, he said, Let no man despise thy youth, But be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in purity, in faith, in verity. Among that list, Timothy was told to be an example in purity. When others see your life and mine, do they have an impression of a person guileless? One who is given to truth? Not given to dishonesty, not given to deception, not given to lying, but rather given to what has no guile within it. That purity, perhaps, was highlighted in three little words in 1 Timothy 5.22. Among the other things that this youngster, Timothy, was ordered, he said, Keep thyself pure. That would be good advice for all of us today, too, wouldn't it? To keep ourselves pure. That purity perhaps leads us to these. We noted earlier about the matter of lying and the condemnation set forth regarding it. But that last passage, not taking advantage of one another, not cheating one another, that is commanded in 1 Thessalonians 4, isn't it? The first half dozen verses of that chapter... Give you and me careful reason to reflect upon, Paul told the Thessalonians, Do not take advantage of others in the sense if you seek to bolster yourself while all the while deceiving them. You and I have a higher calling than that. You and I have in fact a beautiful consideration of reaching forward and upward to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14. Those kind of considerations in all the matters as it relates to deceit lead to just a few final remarks and in the day the lesson will be yours. Deceit is a very realistic problem because Satan will strive to take a person of nobility and honesty, a Christian such as you or me, and one of the ways to destroy our influence To cause us to be lesser considered by those about us is to bring some deceit into our life so that others recognize a hypocrite doesn't practice what he preaches. He says one thing and does something else. He expects more of others than he expects of himself. That kind of deceit will not serve us well as we strive to be like the Master. And for that reason... What about the good name admonished upon you and upon me? A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor more than wisdom and honor. A good name is found solely grounded in the nature of what God has declared, and that includes no deception. But then finally, just as surely as deception is condemned in those earlier verses... I thought it well to close the lesson with two more that paint a picture of just how severe and just how sorrowful this deception can be. In Genesis chapter 3, it was there that as we noted earlier, Eve found herself deceived. She believed what the devil said and fell victim and prey to it. In Revelation 12 verse 9, a description is given of the devil, the deceiver of the whole world. May we never forget that deception does not come from God, nor does it come from the church, nor does it come from those who have an interest in that. It comes always from the devil. And in John 8, did not Jesus say, The devil has been a murderer from the beginning, and all lies, in fact, emanate from him. It is with that in mind that deceit can be a very interesting thing to use to close this lesson. One last observation about that passage we noted earlier. I'd like you to observe as I read again verse 17 of Proverbs chapter 20. Bread of deceit is sweet to a man. We all can understand how sweet a warm, freshly prepared loaf of bread might be. It does taste really good, doesn't it? For the moment... It is so very tasty, so very enjoyable, and it may have rewards and dividends that truly are grand. But then it says, "...but afterward his mouth shall be full of gravel." Deceit, you see, as I mentioned earlier, is of the devil, but there's something the devil doesn't tell us. He paints a picture about the immediate character of deceit, what apparently will be the case in the short term. He emphasizes what will happen now, what will happen immediately, the fame, fortune, notoriety to be garnered as a result of it. But what He doesn't tell us is the picture afterward. Thankfully, God has filled in the void, hasn't He? The bread of that bread may be sweet for the time being, but did you notice He says afterward, His mouth shall be filled with gravel. For just a moment, visualize the difference with me a mouth in which you've just placed a nice, warm, sweet, tasty loaf of bread, piece of bread, versus picking up some gravel out of your driveway and putting in your mouth. One is not only not tasty, it's hard. You can't really swallow it at least safely. And it leads to great problems in terms of all the features and attributes of food. It isn't even edible. That's what God says deceit is like. There's nothing positive that can be said about it. Gravel isn't used for food. It's used for car tires, and it's used for other things, but not for food. So, too, there's no place for deceit in the life of those willing and interested in pleasing God. It is with that in mind, why don't we close this lesson and ask. There's only one remedy for this life of deceit. It's the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ who can remove that deceit and turn your life by way of repentance and obedience to what God would have it to be. If today you are not a member of the body of Christ, if you've never initially obeyed the sweet words of, my, of the Jesus Himself, why not think urgently and seriously about this current state in your life? If we could be of help to you today, we'd be honored to do that. You're commanded to hear, to believe, to repent, to confess, and to be baptized. And if after doing that you find yourself unfaithful, there are mistakes, perhaps even deceit, that you would wish to confess to God and to ask for prayers of brethren, we'd be more than excited to pray with you. Today, if we could be of any help to anyone in those regards, or simply to pray for strength, we'd be delighted to do it. We have chosen this convenient time. Brother Adam's going to lead us in a song of invitation. And if we could be of any assistance to you now, why not come, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.